This is the Horse Radio Network. You're listening to the Stall and Stable Show, ideas for happy horsekeeping. We horse people are always up for a good story, and our life with horses are never short on tall tales. But the best stories are those told by old pros. And I say that with great respect and admiration for today's guest. Dr. Madison Siemens is back, and he has a great story to share with us about a mare named Whiskey, who could certainly hold her liquor. Treating horses out in the field is what equine veterinarians do most often. Dr. Siemens' insight about what goes into keeping our horses comfortable during treatment is fascinating and often funny. So listen in. This is episode 112 of the Stall and Stable Show, brought to you by American Stalls. If you're looking for stall components that are safe, elegant, and built to last, reach out to American Stalls. Quality products is just half of the equation when it comes to outfitting your barn, no matter what barn design you have, center aisle, shed, row, run-in. Barns don't just pop up by themselves. You need help. Good help comes with good service. American Stalls has a team that's knowledgeable, helpful, and honest. What a breath of fresh air that is. You can find out more at AmericanStalls.com. Welcome back, listeners. Today is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, Helena Harris. Please support our show by letting our sponsors know they're in good company. In addition to American Stalls, we are grateful for the support of Barn Pros, shipping their incredible equestrian home and barn kits nationwide. You can find them online at barnpros.com. Adventures in Field Anesthesia The young mare stood trembling and bleeding a little from a nasty cut on her hind leg. For reasons known only to Whiskey, an opinionated ten-year-old mare, she liked to scramble frantically out of the two-horse trailer that she apparently liked less than Shanna did. I got this new, bigger trailer, so she loads okay now, but I'm always worried that she will slip and fall because she still hurries to get out. It looks like she really did it to herself this time. She had. Most of the skin of her left rear leg had been rolled down like a cheap sock from her hock to her ankle. The extensor tendon had been lacerated, but thankfully the flexor tendons had not been damaged. Although there was no critical injury to any joint or tendon in Whiskey's leg, the cut was about 12 inches long and deep. I really wanted to try to suture this wound because of my concern for the exposed bone and the potential for infection. Do you think you can sew it up? Shanna sobbed. I think we ought to try, I replied. I prepared a bucket with clean hot water and cotton to gently wash Whiskey's cut leg. As I approached Whiskey, she snorted like she didn't like the smell of the transplanted Texan with the stainless steel bucket in his hand. Go figure. As she turned to face me, I could tell that she was not interested in any veterinary care at the moment. I talked to her and stroked her neck a little, but she would have none of my sweet talk. So I injected a small amount of tranquilizer into her jugular vein, hoping that a mild sedative would instill more of a cooperative nature in this good but worried mare. After a few minutes, 
It was obvious that whiskey would require a little more drug before she was going to be comfortable with the situation. I gave her some more. But by this time, she was really wise to the needle. Whiskey was pretty mad at me by the time I got the second shot in her. Finally, her head dropped a little, and she began to relax as the painkiller took her mind off her leg and the sedative took her mind off of me. I began slowly to wash and examine the cut leg. I was thankful that my initial impression was accurate and there was no serious damage to any vital structures. Despite the fairly high dose of drugs circulating in Whiskey's bloodstream, she was still moving away and kicking at me a little as I tried to gently clean the wound. Whenever possible, I try to suture cuts on horses while they are standing, as opposed to lying them down under a general anesthesia. Modern drugs are usually safe and effective, but there is always an increased risk with a general. I explained the plan to Shanna and Whiskey, both of whom seemed to be listening attentively. I drew a syringe full of lidocaine and gently placed a small, very sharp needle under the skin near the top edge of the wound. This is usually the only part of the procedure that the horse feels. The lidocaine works so quickly that once the needle is under the skin, the effect of the drug can block the pain before the needle is advanced. Whiskey was apparently not aware of this phenomenon, and she kicked the needle and syringe out of my hand with admirable accuracy. <laughs> Repeated attempts brought similar results. It looks like whiskey may require a little general anesthesia before we can sew up the wound, I said, knowing that a little general anesthesia was like being a little pregnant. I can see that, Shannon replied. Is that dangerous? Then she added, and how expensive is it? It's usually pretty safe and easy, I said. I don't charge anything to knock her out, just to wake her up. That was an edited clip from Never Trust a Sneaky Pony and other things they didn't teach me in vet school. That was Dr. Madison Siemens narrating. We're going to talk to Dr. Siemens now about the situation with whiskey and other things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to anesthesia in the field. Good morning, Dr. Siemens. Welcome back to Stall and Stable. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, you know. Well, I'm very happy that you come on my show because I get to pick your brain about all sorts of veterinary questions. Well, pick, pick easy. It's getting smaller as I get older. <laughs> <laughs> I've read your book, Never Trust a Sneaky Pony and Other Things They Did Not Teach Me in Vet School. We're going to talk about the chapter that, um, or the, the clip that we just played, and that is about whiskey. I have a million questions about the stories that I read in this book. and. You tell these stories, but there's so much more to them. So I'm hoping that we can dive in a little bit deeper to this chapter that talks about whiskey. Um, in particular, it's anesthesia in the field. Tell me what you remember as the real standout with this case, with whiskey, when you first got there. And um, just give us a high-level overview of what you saw when you got there and what your plan was. Boy, this particular case crawled up on my pillow with me for years after that incident. And it was just 
one reason why you have to approach these things with caution. You know, there you've heard it said that there's there's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no old bold pilots. And the same goes for field surgery. It's one of those things that everybody's got 2020 hindsight and had I to do this differently than I did at the time. And this man, then this story goes back. Oh, golly, this is 25 years ago. And I still remember this. I mean, this this was a nightmare. The challenge you have to understand is that the anesthetic protocol we have for general anesthesia hasn't really changed much in the last 30 years. I mean, we've we've got some drugs that are safe and effective, but they all come, you know, with their own set of potential problems. And one of the deals is, and there's a difference between sedation and general anesthesia. Let's start with that. So if if we can do something standing with no drugs, then that's our first choice. If the horse is a little worried and we need a little pharmacologic assistance in the terms of sedation, which the horse is still standing, but is a little bit less worried because of the pharmacy that we've stuck in their jugular vein. I, I have a friend that's an ER nurse and uh, she calls the drug, the drug protocol IDC. And that's an acronym for I don't care. So that's the kind of drugs that we use. It really doesn't take away the pain. It just makes them not care. So if we can do that, I mean, we always want to just do things as simple and as easy as we possibly can. But there are those cases that the horse is so worried that you can't even get local anesthetic into that area. And so 99% of the time, and even some really nasty cuts, if you can get the horse relaxed enough to get local anesthetic in the area so that they don't feel it, they'll stand there for hours. I mean, it's just, it's just not that big a deal. But every now and then you'll run across one like whiskey that required more than just a little pharmacologic assistance to get this done today. How do you decide when you can give a little bit of a tranquilizer so that you can get a standing treatment done versus we're going to need to lay this horse down? You know, there's something. And, and can you ever do that in the field or do you have to ship a horse out to a bigger medical facility in order to do the lay down procedure? <laughs> like a lot of things, that decision is made by the horse. If they'll stand there and let me do it, well, then that's what we're going to do. But uh, we get into a situation, and like everything else, there's, there's a risk versus benefits paradigm here. The risk of laying a horse down versus not treating him uh, is greater than, you know, the benefit of treating him. Well, then, of course, we just, you know, squirt some cold water on it and hope for the best. But there are those cases that you really got to try to sew them up if you can. And that was a situation with whiskey. But as, as I said, it, with 2020 hindsight, had I known then what I know now, I'd have said, no, heck no, we'll just put a wrap on it and hope for the best. But as it turned out, it, 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 didn't, it, didn't, it didn't work out that way. Yeah. So let's talk about space. Did you lay her down or did you do it standing? That was the whole, the, you know, at least a part of the whole story about whiskey was the anesthetic reaction. And so we got a couple of things going on physiologically. And so if the horse is really upset or worried or scared or whatever you want to put into that, you know, they've got, man, their, their entire autonomic nervous system is being driven by adrenaline. Okay. Epinephrine is the technical term for it. And that has the ability to override the anesthetic agent. And so if they're really worried when you stick the anesthesia in them, you'll get one or two reactions. They'll either drop it like a rock or they'll fight it bad. And instead of just laying down nice and peacefully like you'd hope, then they start fighting it. And that's when they can injure themselves. Because as prey animals, 
it's their instinctual self-preservation kicks in. They don't want to lay down because if they lay down, then the predator can get them. Do they actually get a sense that they're losing consciousness? They're losing the vigilance? They're, do they feel the anesthetic working and then, I don't want to say consciously, but intentionally fight against it? You know, that, nobody's ever asked me that question before, Helena, and I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I don't, I don't know exactly what a horse is thinking, but I know just from watching them clinically, because I've seen a few of these anesthetic wrecks. I mean, unfortunately, the good news is that it, it doesn't happen very often, but boy, oh boy, when it does, it's a mess. Mm. And so what happens is that they get this called a sympathetic override. So what you're trying to do with the general anesthetic agent is you're trying to dull their senses to the point where they can't not only not feel, but they can't even stand. And so you have basically, you've got their entire central nervous system subdued to a place very close to being dead. And so that, that's kind of the old joke is that I don't charge you to put you to sleep. I charge you to wake you up. Yeah. You know? I mean, anybody can put you to sleep. I, I'm, I think I'm getting confused when you say general anesthetic, I'm thinking like humans where you lay yes. down and you got the exactly. mask and exactly, but you don't necessarily need to be intubated. When you have general, well, is that right? When you're, I mean, the beautiful part about, about going to a referral hospital is that they have clean rooms. They've got their relatively safe ways to lay them down and wake them up and all that kind of stuff. They can intubate them so they can use inhalation anesthesia. They can, they can also resuscitate them or keep them alive with a, with a respirator. So you've seen in those, in the hospital shows, you know what I mean? You got that thing that looks like a, looks like a, an accordion going up and down, you know, breathing for the person that's under anesthetic. Well, you don't have that in the field. And so we use injectable anesthetic protocols for surgical procedures in the field, whereas an inhalation anesthetic protocol is what we'd use in a hospital setting. And that's the difference. It's okay. much, much safer to have them in a hospital setting. But, you know, that's not always available. So you just can't you just can't call 911 and have somebody show up and take your horse to the ER. I mean, there's it's it's just a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. yeah well, there's a business idea, you know, that horse ambulance. <laughs> yeah. So when the vet comes out to work on one of my horses, we've got a boo-boo that needs to be sewn up or something like that, or let's say they're getting an, an endoscopy or you no know, gastroscope or something. Um, they'll give them a tranquilizer. You know, when the horse gets kind of sleepy, but they're still standing, maybe they'll lean on the halter and the crossed eyes to hold them up a little bit. Um, how is that level of sedation different than the general that you use in the field? Do you use the same drugs and one is just a higher dose of it? Or are they different drugs and you know other different things that you have to consider? It depends on the on the actual chemical protocol. We really don't have a whole lot of choices here. I mean, our 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 injectable anesthetic sedating agents hasn't really changed much in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, the stuff we're using now is basically the same stuff I used when I, you know, when the earth's surface was still cooling and I was a young graduate. And the good news is, is that they're very safe and effective. But again, if you have a wreck, you're going to have a wreck. And so the, the protocol I use, it's a, it's a series of, of alpha blockers, which lowers blood pressure and just depresses the central nervous system response to external stimulus. If we add another drug on top of that, that will induce a general anesthetic situation where the horse is asleep down, can't feel nothing. 
So with the sedation, they're still standing. They can feel stuff. They will be reactive. But with the general anesthetic, you use the sedating drug first to get them really, really, really calm and relaxed. And then you use another drug on top of that to actually induce the state of general anesthesia. And the, the downside of all of this is that the horses are still a little responsive. And so, again, if they get the sympathetic override because they're worried or mad or upset, or if Billy Bob starts the chainsaw right next to where you're trying to do an anesthetic agent, or if the train comes by, or if the, you're in a thunderstorm and the thunderbolts and lightning start stirring up their friends in the paddock next to you, all of these things can present a potentially nasty, nasty anesthetic reaction because these horses are still a little light. So that's why when I've laid one down, so we use the same protocol. If we're going to do a castration in the field or we're going to do a minor laceration uh, repair uh, in horses that just can't seem to stand having this done under sedation and local anesthesia, we can, we can lay these horses down and, and, uh, and it's, it's usually pretty safe. Now in the book, you mentioned that you sometimes will put a towel over the horse's face in order to reduce the, the external stimulus that might come in exactly. and, and sort of trigger. It's like their brain can't stop receiving the, those triggers the, exactly. that engage their survival mechanisms. So, so it's a good idea then to have a quiet space. So if you do have a barn, exactly. maybe close the doors, keep their friends out. Keep exactly. things as quiet as possible. Okay. Keep things as quiet. Well, so and sometimes with that situation, so I always use a towel over their eye because they do not close their eyes. Okay. So it's not like on television where the guy's got his eyes closed. So I don't know anything about human anesthesia, but with a horse, their eyes are still open. And so technically they're still able to receive some photic information. And so if there's a lot of lights going by, if it's at night or the owner is down there because she's so worried about Queenie, she's petting her and stroking her and saying, oh, Queenie, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. That type of stimulus is going to really interfere with our ability to achieve that level of anesthesia that's going to allow us to do something to these guys without hurting them or making them worry. Hmm. One of the things that I find fascinating, too, is that different horses of different sizes and backgrounds and dispositions <laughs> can hold their liquor differently. I had a little 14 three-hand quarter horse who was just the best. I mean, he was great. What a level-headed horse. But he took almost three times the amount of tranquilizer that a horse twice his size took. And he didn't fight it, but, you know, we just said he certainly wasn't a cheap date. And then big horses, you give them a little bit and they're down for the count. Is there any rhyme or reason to this, or is it really that random? You never know how much it's going to take. You want the short answer? Yeah, just give me both. No. <laughs> it's, it's, I, you know, theoretically, it's by weight, okay, theoretically. But like, for example, mules and donkeys, they take a lot more drug than a horse. I don't know why. And then that's disposition. If the horse is really worried when I get there, he's going to take more. And you got to be really careful with that. So as my rule of thumb is, and I've, I've got my favorite protocol. We've only got a couple of drugs out there that we can use, believe it or not. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's available, but most of us use one or two or three different drugs. That's it. That's all I have on my truck. And so you got to be, you got to be careful with the dosage. And what I do is, is that I will give them about, two-thirds of what I think they're going to need. 
because you can always put more in them, but you can't take it back. Okay. It's like a second margarita for me. That's a really a ugly thing. You just don't want Madison's second margarita going in him. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where you are. And it just, a lot of this just comes with experience. I mean, it truly does. You don't, you don't just walk up and you think that you're going to need to sedate this horse and just walk up and jab a needle in him. I mean, he's already convinced that you're going to hurt him and you've, you know, confirmed his suspicions when you stick a needle in him. There's so many horses. I mean, I can't even tell you the number. The percentage is very high for me. Probably 70% of the lacerations that I will sew up in the field require local anesthetic, but no sedative. What about when they get fidgety? You know, like Clarabelle is pretty calm. She's very trusting, happy to kind of stand and let you poke and prod her. But the wound that she had on her leg was just ouchy enough where she'd kept lifting the leg every time we tried to change the bandage. And when you're using a nonstick pad, that can be very challenging. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, anytime the uh, vet came out and was trying to clean it up again, they'd give her just a little bit of a tranquilizer so that she would stand still, which would make the actual work on her leg go a lot faster and therefore the whole experience a little less traumatic for her and us. Does that sound like something you you experience on a regular basis? Like, yeah, we'll just give so, a little to keep them still so we can get the job done well. Yeah. I mean, so sometimes, I mean, you know, you know, time is money. And so if we have to dance around with Queenie for 40 minutes trying to get a bandage change versus we can give her a little something to slow her down uh, and get that thing done in 90 seconds. I mean, that's, that's a no brainer there, you know, but uh, I think, some of these wounds, I mean, you've, you know, everybody's had a cut on their hand or their leg or their face or whatever, especially if you've been in the, been around horses for more than about 20 minutes, you've, you've endured your share of your, your share of horse induced lacerations and bumps and bruises. And, but as a general rule, even a pretty nasty laceration quits hurting in about three or four days. And so what I think goes on with these horses is that that's my owie. I remember that it hurt a few days ago and I'm pretty sure you're going to hurt me again. So don't touch my owie. I think that's the, that's the psychological, you know, semi traumatic event that's going on inside their little walnut sized brain. And uh, so, yeah, to give a horse a little bit of something, I mean, again, these things are safe and effective and there's just really no downside uh, you know, one of the more modern drugs that, that I use a lot of is called detomidine. And uh, it is actually even cleared for use in pregnant mares. I mean, that's how safe this stuff is. So you got to be careful. You don't just go stabbing everything that walks in the door. But, uh, the, you know, everybody is just hypersensitive now about, about well, especially now with the fentanyl crisis and all of this stuff that's out there. And everybody's very, very aware and sensitive to how bad some of these drugs can be. But uh, I can tell you that, and the, and the reason that a story like Whiskey got in the book was because it was a very unique situation. And so, you know, you don't write about stuff that everything happened fine. You know, you write about stuff that was a wreck or like good cowboy poetry. You know, if, if, if nobody dies, it's funny eventually. And <laughs> so although Whiskey's situation is 25 years old, it still ain't funny, but it's definitely interesting. Okay. So let's go back to, to Whiskey for a minute then. You gave her the general anesthesia because the first round of tranquilizer, she fought right through that and became just a train wreck. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then you're like, okay, plan B. And, you know, you said you only really needed like 18 to 20 minutes of that deep surgical anesthesia to get things done. But she was down. Like, so 
one of the things that I know is that horses can drop easily. <laughs> you know, they can be graceful about it or they can go down hard. When she went down, how do you how do you ensure her safety when she, when that general anesthesia really kicks in? Yeah, you can't. Okay. There's no guarantees. And again, I've, I've used this same protocol on literally thousands of horses over the last almost 40 years now. And I can count on one hand wrecks like we had with whiskey. I mean, it is very, very, very uncommon. And so it's, again, it's that risk versus benefits type of paradigm. And of course, I always tell the owner, you know, look, there's a chance that we're going to have a problem here. And so, you know, do you want to take that chance? And so when we're laying them down, we never want to lay them down. I, I don't lay them down inside a stall. I just won't do it because there's no, if you have a wreck or a rough, you know, a rough recovery, there's no way for me to get out of the way. Yeah. And so what we want to do is we want to lay them down someplace where we're far, far away from anything that they can fall on if they're trying to get up. Ideally, you'd like for them, you give them the shot, they're nice and relaxed, you give them the second shot to lay them down, they just lay right down and everything is great. And then when you do your surgery, you're done, and you uh, you give them 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to get up and they just stand straight up and everything is fine. And that does happen. But if there's something within 100 yards for them to fall on, yeah, <laughs> like, like an upside down Harold or an old broke down John Deere, they will get tangled up in that thing in a heartbeat. So you need to set yourself up to succeed, not to fail. And if you move all that debris away, put them in a relatively safe space. And I'm talking about at least 100 feet if you can. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's a nice flat. I mean, and even a dirty paddock is going to be a lot safer than a clean stall. Yes. I was thinking even if you have to do it outside, like in a grassy oh, field or. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We had Rebecca Houston on. She's a, a first responder for horses. And she and I were talking about stalls. You know, any putting a horse in any confined space just increases the risk of danger simply because that confinement and legs and hooves and walls just never work out well, especially when my, they're, you know, they're drunk. <laughs> yeah, my rule of thumb is never get in between a horse and something that doesn't move. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> that's what she said. Now, you do describe in this chapter the steps that you guys took to help Whiskey go down. So when you saw her starting to sway and her hind end started to fold underneath her, you were prepared to kind of ease her down onto the ground when that happened. That was not the, the end of it. This was an unscheduled recovery, yes. yes. And you had to work <laughs> fast. Um, talking about bringing them up and out of it. So once they are down, I do know that one of the risks of general is that a horse will scramble and waking up from anesthesia can be just as dangerous as going down. The recovery is always the wreck. The, the, indu the induction, and, and one of the things that you can anticipate is if the induction is rough, if they really fight it and they're flopping around instead of just laying down, they try to get back up. You know what I mean? If they're really fighting it going down, you can bet the farm that you're going to have a problem with recovery. And so when, I, when I've given them that second shot to, in, to actually induce the, the full, completely anesthetized level of anesthesia, I always want to hold on to the rope so that if they, if they go down hard, I try to keep them from banging their head. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got a little head covering that's made out of the same stuff that uh, ski vest, water ski vest is made out of. 
And so, and there's some holes in uh, to allow for room for the eyes. And that really helps to protect their eyes or their face as they're going down if they have rough induction or recovery. But even that, I mean, there's just no guarantees. You know, you just you do the best you can. You try to get them relaxed if you can. And some of these horses are, are so worried and so reactive is that I mix the drug for the sedation and for the induction in the same syringe. Because you may not have another chance to get a needle in this horse. How does that work? I, I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. And it's in the textbook say, oh, yo, don't do this. Well, I can tell you from a fair amount of experience. And I learned this from an old practitioner a long, long time ago. I'd just been out of school for about 20 minutes. And uh, I was having a heck of a time getting this colt laid down to cut him, you know. And so I went in and talked to the boss and, and uh, he asked me what I did. And I told him I did this the protocol of you give him the sedation and you wait 10 or 12 minutes. And typically what you're waiting for is for their head to drop, their ears to kind of flop. And on a gel, on a horse you're fixing to castrate, you'd like to see that penis prolapse. And so when you've got all three of those things going on, then most of these horses are ready to give the second shot that'll lay them down. It's a different drug. So, so I went and said, George, I'm having a heck of a time with this. And so he said, ah, get out of the way, kid. So he pulled up both drugs in one syringe and went out there and stuck the horse. And in about 90 seconds, the horse was on the ground and I was doing the surgery. So the textbooks will tell you, do not do this. But boy, oh boy, there's a time where we just got to kind of think out of that textbook. I have talked to several veterinary board certified veterinary anesthesiologists about this very question and asked them just point blank, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And all of them say it's a bad thing. And I say, why? And they can't give me the answer. So I can tell you sometimes some experience will uh, will trump <laughs> what the textbooks say about this. Because, again, the horse is worried that you're going to hurt him. You've just confirmed his suspicions by sticking a needle in him. I mean, yeah. sometimes and now you talk about needle. So he was already worried. And so now, you know, trying to get back and get that second dose in him. That's where you can start to set yourself up for a bad reaction because now he's worried. Again, mm. that, that adrenaline starts getting pumped through his system. We get that sympathetic override, and you can bet you're going to have a problem. So the difference between sedation and induction is it it's the same drug, but just more of it? No, the sedation is what it takes to get him good and relaxed. And you're basically, you're chemically kind of priming those higher brain centers and those motor centers you're priming them to allow this other drug to kick in and then once you got them down then a lot of times what i'll do knowing i'm going to need more and this is what i did on whiskey was uh i went ahead and i put a an indwelling intravenous catheter in their juggler vein so i can do two things with this number one is i don't have to hurt them again number two i don't have to find the vein number three i can actually get the client to, in to inject the drug into the catheter that's what we did with clarabelle there's just a little plastic port in the top of that thing and so anybody if you if you can't hit that plastic port well then you got more problems than you know i mean it's just right there you know now do you tape it in place because they wrap some tape around her neck to keep it from I, moving around I don't, boy i don't tape them anymore because if you leave that catheter in uh, most of my patients end, end up fighting the tape more than they fight the catheter and so what i do is there's a little ring around the tops of those catheters that is ideally suited to wrap a little piece of suture material around that so what I do is I will actually tack that down to the skin using that little ring around the top of the catheter to secure the catheter to the neck, the skin of the neck. And so that way, if they flop around a little bit, I still got that catheter in place. Then the, the tape hasn't been, has not been a great way to secure that in, in my hands. So you must be pretty quick and adept with a needle and thread. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially on a case, especially on a case like whiskey, where I had to, I, man, I had to so fast. And so when some of these cases, when I get done, I kind of joke about it. When I'm done with the last, I've tied the last knot on these things. I feel like throwing my hands up, like for time for the calf ropers, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking about the horse's adrenaline. Um, now I'm thinking about your adrenaline and then the owner who's probably standing very nearby. I mean, your expertise, the fact that you know, confidence, that's going to bring the energy down around the horse. Um, do you ever have difficulty with the owners being <laughs> fighting this as well and making it more difficult? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I learned something. Sable, if you're listening, I still love you, my friend. Lady named Sable. Many, many, many years ago, I was doing a very interesting surgery on a tumor on the testicle of a stallion. And this was her baby. This was her prize stallion. And I was doing this and I'd been out, I've been in practice for quite a while. And at this point, and this was a long time ago, but I was pretty confident what, what we were doing. And this was going to be a relatively simple thing. And, and, uh, she kept asking me questions. She was worried about his eyes were open. She was worried about his breathing. She was worried about this. And I, I kept saying, don't worry about it, Sable. Don't worry about it, Sable. Don't worry about it, Sable. And we got the surgery done and we were done and, and fire lived and everybody was fine. Well, everybody except for Sable. And so about Oh, four or five days later, she sent me a letter firing me. And the reason that she fired me was because I did not address her concerns. So instead of saying, don't worry about it, what I should have said was, I understand your concern. His eyes will remain open. That's part of this anesthetic protocol. He won't close his eyes. Or I understand your concern. There will be a little bleeding. You know, I should have just addressed the concern mm. rather than to tell her, don't worry about it. It's like when somebody tells you to calm down. Does that ever work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong? If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Calm down and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Two things exactly. to never say to a, a horsewoman. Um <laughs> I, I mean, I love that you admit that, that you you go back and now you've realized that treating the human being who's standing by is almost as important as treating the animal. Well, absolutely. It's, it, and the, the, the comment that, that gets bantered about every now and then, wow, you sure are lucky to be working with horses. And I said, no, this is not a horse business. This is a people business. And the people are just crazy enough to own a horse. But everything turned out okay with whiskey, right? No, it, it, it didn't. Well, in, in the long haul, it did. Okay. But in the short haul, and I'm talking months here, most of the time I'll use two protocols on these guys. If they're having a general anesthetic, I will, st even though theoretically they can't feel anything, okay, I will use a local anesthetic at the same time. And so it's, the, it's lidocaine. It's the same drug that the dentist uses on your jaw. And so I will infuse a bunch of lidocaine around the area that I'm going to work because when I'm sticking the needle in these guys, that's another stimulus that will potentially wake them up too quickly. So I use the general anesthetic protocol as well as a local anesthetic in order to just buy myself some time. Mm. And so typically you can do something that hurts them. Once they're anesthetized, you can do something painful for about 15 minutes. But in some cases, you don't have that much time. And as you stimulate them with the sharp point of the needle or you're debriding the wound, cleaning it up, whatever you're doing, it hurts because that's an owie. 
And so I will, I will use that to my advantage to buy me some more anesthetic time with whiskey. She kept moving around and not just a little bit. This was on a hind leg. And so she not only moved around, she kicked my bucket, my instruments, my hand. I mean, she was with it and, and had the potential for hurting us bad. So we gave her a, another round of the, of the general and went back to sewing and we just barely got it done after, I think it was like three or four doses of the same cocktail. We got the leg bandaged and she rolled over on her sternum and started to get up, but she could not pick her front legs up. So she had her back legs fully extended and she was screaming like a stallion and pushing herself forward on her face and on the front of both knees on the front of her limb. Well, this was the train wreck that you refer to. This was the train wreck. And so she wound up trying to get up and worried because she couldn't. So she was conscious enough to know that she couldn't get up, but not conscious enough to be able to extend her front legs so that she could stand. So she actually ground the skin and the soft tissue and some of the extensor tendons across the face of both of her knees in front all the way down to the bone. And so she, she went from a relatively, relatively minor laceration on one hind leg to unsuturable, untreatable other than wraps, lacerations on all four because of the anesthetic wreck. And had we just left well enough alone, sedated the heck out of her and put a wrap around that, that hind leg, this would have been a, oh, maybe 45-day healing process. And as it was, you know, it was about a six-month healing process. Oh, I know that very well. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> The part I'm thinking long term, because uh, I read the book. So whiskey does survive that after the six month healing. She survived, and I, I actually I saw uh, I saw Shanna at a at a team pinning, oh probably a year later, and uh, you know I recognized whiskey right away. Shanna had actually won the pinning, so the mayor actually responded very well. And I guess that's the that's kind of the moral of the story here is is that some of the most devastating looking injuries will eventually heal. You know, the guy that invented all this stuff knew what he was doing and uh, stuff will eventually heal. And sometimes if we just get out of the way, stuff will heal better than us trying to put a bunch of stuff on it. And, you know, again, hindsight, had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have tried to suture that thing up. I would have just sedated her. Or I'd have done something. I'd have got somebody to hold a leg up or something. And we'd have got a bandage on that thing. Well, I have two more questions for you, and then we'll wrap up. And hopefully they'll be brief, but it's us, so, you know. No, they, it's, it's me. It's not going to be brief, okay? <laughs> um, well, the first is a statement that I want to make, and you just talked about it, and that was, you know, the, the more we get involved and the more we try to micromanage a horse's healing process, I have found that that can really trip us up. That can make it harder and take longer. And I have so taken your advice with, just back off a little bit and let the horse's body do what it needs to do. Let the horse be a horse and you'll find that their their body will heal itself in wonderful ways. And it's Friday morning, March 10th, and we're recording this episode. And I'm talking to Dr. Siemens and I'm looking out the window while I'm recording. And there is an eight-year-old thoroughbred mare who is standing directly at me through the window. Her ears are at 10 and 2 and she is so relaxed and happy. And you know Why? because I took her damn blanket off <laughs> four months ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk about not micromanaging your horse. Um, 
So the last question is, what would you suggest to horse owners before we get into that emergency situation? What can we do to our barns or our farms or our setups so that we're not rushing around trying to find a safe space to treat our horses when the time comes? Do you need dedicated space or can you pretty much function anywhere? No, I, I, we function just, at least for me, I mean, I, we can do whatever we need to do just about anywhere. So, but I, I think, I think a couple of, a couple of things come to mind is that whatever you're building, build it a lot bigger than you think you're ever going to need, because you, you'll, you're going to, if it's, it's a center aisle, I mean, I, I've done a lot of work in stalls and center aisles. And so if you're going to do that, then make your center aisle big enough for your vet to get his truck in there. Because there's a few things more aggravating than me have to walk 100 yards to grab another needle when I drop one in the dirt. So make the center, if you're going to do a center aisle or a shed row, make it big enough so the vet's truck can get in there. A regular full-size truck, not some little, you know, Toyota or something. I mean, a regular truck. And the other thing to have is you got to have a round pin. You just got to. So this is not only for your relationship directly with your horse, but this is also will help me when I come to treat him. If we've got a nice round pin to turn him loose in, or if we've got a round pin for me to work in so that if he decides he does not want to be present during the time of treatment, we've got him confined. Mm. And if it's a round pin with me with pipe panels, then there's no danger of him running into a wire or T-post. Those are the types of things that really play for me. A lot of people have stocks. That's those little bitty that almost looks like a horse trailer stall that they put their horses in. I'm not a big fan of these. Again, I don't like to get myself in between a horse and something that does not move. So, uh, and most of the stocks are built way too big so that I have to lean way over in order to get to the horse. And you can't do lower leg stuff in the stocks anyway. So, I mean, if you're going to spend money on a stocks, just save your money and spend it on a round pin. I never would have thought of a round pen as a great place to treat a horse. I know everything else it's good for, but I never would have thought of it as an ideal place to treat in the field. But uh, I will make that recommendation to my clients from now on. Well, the book is called Never Trust a Sneaky Pony and Other Things They Did Not Teach Me in Vet School. Dr. Siemens not only wrote the book, but he narrated the audio version, which we are in the process of producing now. We're very close to getting that ready. The other thing before we go is that your business, your practice as a veterinarian is starting to evolve into some new spaces and you're going to be offering some remote consultations. Is that right? Are you ready to do that? Yes. Yes. We just launched this thing on our website here not too long ago and uh, people have questions and concerns about what's being done, what is going to be done. Uh, the prognosis, all these types of questions that may be answered by the attending veterinarian, but perhaps not as thorough as what we can go through. So I have almost 40 years of experience in equine medicine and surgery. I belong to the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And so we have a, a vast network of board certified specialists in everything horse internationally that I can go to that, to help answer any of your questions. And so uh, just log on to cornerstoneequine.com and just punch on the consultation button and it will direct you to give us a history and get you started on a one-on-one on -a -one conversation with me on the telephone. And I can tell you listeners that Dr. Seaman served in that consultatory role for me and in a couple of cases, 
not the least of which was Clarabelle's long journey. And it was incredibly helpful to have a second opinion and just a second point of view. And then I could weigh what he was suggesting with what my veterinarian and, and everybody talks, you know, there's no, uh, no competition. It was more like a team. And it was so, so worthwhile. So check it out. And we will be sure to put links in the show notes for this episode to Dr. Siemens website. Dr. Madison Siemens, thank you once again so very much for a great conversation on Stall and Stable. I hope you will be back again soon. Well, thanks for inviting me. I, I almost never get invited to the same place twice. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but <laughs> thank you. I hope you are now as big of a fan of Dr. Siemens as I am. If you're looking for the book, you can find it at horseandriderbooks.com. Again, the title is Never Trust a Sneaky Pony and Other Things They Didn't Teach Me in Vet School. For more information about what we talked about in this episode, go to stallandstable.com and look up episode 112, show notes. We'll provide links to all of these great resources for you. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with a friend, share it on your social platforms, tell a friend, talk about it. The more we can get the word out about how to take good care of our horses, the better our horses will be. Many thanks once again to our sponsors, American Stalls and Barn Pros. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>